0: We've been resuming a series that we started some time ago called Being Human and looking at some different aspects of what it means to be human. And this morning I want to do this by raising a question and asking the question, well, being human, being Christians, what kind of people ought we to be? If I was asking that question of you and asking you to give me two or three key things that you think should characterize us as human beings and as Christians, I wonder what would be the most important things that would emerge from you and from us collectively together as a congregation this morning. It is in fact a question to which there's a very direct answer in scripture and I want later on this morning to turn to that passage in scripture and to speak about those few verses. I'm going to read them first of all. Um, you'll find them in Peter's second letter, the second letter of Peter. And I'd like us to read together the third chapter of Second Peter. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Savior. Through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be led bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard. So that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. The question, what kind of people ought we to be, is given a very direct answer. And you find it there in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11 and what follows. The context of the question and the answer is the context of a community which are very cynical about Christians and about what Christians believe. There are many people who are mocking, many people who are giving them a hard time. And when you read First Peter, you discover that there are many Christians who are literally suffering for doing good. The kind of issues addressed specifically here are in verses 3 and 4. People scoffing. And following their own evil desires and questioning the credibility of the Christian message and the Christian gospel. So taken along with 1 Peter, it's very clear that everything about Christianity in the first century was counter to the culture of the day. And the question that Peter is asking here, what kind of people ought you to be, is in that context. And in the context of expecting God to do something in judgment eventually. I suppose that really the question that I want to ask this morning is not simply what kind of people ought we to be but what kind of people ought we to be in a society that is cynical about our faith. It's been a very interesting week. I was in England part of the week. I went to the Borders bookshop in Oxford to look around the religion section. The biggest part of that section is still on Christianity. The shelves, though are straining under the weight of books debunking Christianity. Loads of books exposing the real truth about Jesus. Books revealing gospels that have been kept hidden by the church for generations. Books that are really popularizing well-known theological issues, but doing so with a kind of slant of expose, what they didn't want you to know. I bought one. I bought this one. Peter, Paul and Mary Magdalene. Um, Written by a a very able scholar Um, and it's fascinating and it's fascinating too the way in which he introduces the whole subject of looking at the characters of Peter uh, and of Paul and of Mary Magdalene. And the way in which he begins by explaining essentially that you can't read the Gospels and expect to find any narrative that is historically true. Um, He describes the Gospels as not historical narratives of what actually took place. They can't be, he says. And then works from that premise, so having got the Gospels as truth or storytelling or history out of the way, then you look at them for the theology that lies behind it and you work out the messages accordingly. And that's just so common. Mind you, my browsing the bookshelves was nothing compared to the first skirmishes in regard to the implications of the new equality legislation that's being uh, discussed for England and Wales and the Catholic Church adoption agencies. If you've been out of the country this past week, or been asleep for most of it, and haven't heard it, here's the issues. The Catholic adoption agencies at present refer gay couples who, if they were to present themselves looking a child for adoption, to other adoption agencies because they don't feel that they can, on moral and ethical grounds, be involved in that. New legislation will make it illegal to do that and oblige the Catholic adoption agencies to be prepared to place children with gay couples as with heterosexual couples or single people. And Cormac Murphy O'Connor wrote to the Prime Minister and all the members of Cabinet saying that the Catholic adoption agencies would close if this was imposed on them because they couldn't and wouldn't comply with something that was so thoroughly against their conscience and beliefs. Now I don't know how much of it you can believe but apparently Tony Blair or his wife or both were looking for an exemption for the Catholic Church, but seem to have been trodden underfoot by the cabinet. But the issues are very interesting, no matter about the politics of it. Because some people say if Catholic adoption agencies are running on public money, then they can't be immune from the law. And in principle, I would have to say I agree. I think that's fair. I think any religious organization that takes money from the government is obliged to live by the rules of the government. And that's why I would caution Christian organisations about becoming reliant on money from the public purse. It's bound to have strings attached. Mind you, I don't think it's a fair representation of how it works. Some say Catholic beliefs on this issue should be respected. Well, I certainly agree with that. It's wrong to characterise Catholics as homophobic because of what they, and we as it happens, believe about sexual morality and behaviour. That's unacceptable. Some say the view that homosexual sexuality is a sin is bigotry. It's demeaning of homosexuals and must not be tolerated. It's the favourite question that interviewers always try to put to Ruth Kelly, the government cabinet minister, who is very publicly uh, practising as, as a Roman Catholic. If we can get her to say it's sin, then we can lock the woman into a corner where all sins should be burnt in hell and therefore she would believe that all homosexuals should be burnt in hell seems to be the general tack which she has managed to avoid. Of course we disagree with that kind of stereotyping of what people who have a difficulty with homosexual behaviour actually believe. And I think what's been fascinating this week is the way in which the conversations on this have actually been running at times in two completely different tracks. One track is the Catholic Church and many others expressing issues about freedom and respect of conscience and the implications of that if you're forced to do things which are not necessary to do. And the other is about justice. Uh, Justice for practicing homosexual people whose orientation is now generally considered to be just completely normal. I think the other significant thing as I reflect on a lot of this this week is that the secular worldview is not entirely wrong. I mean, People are right to be cynical at times. The discrepancy between the church's concern in this issue and the sexual scandals in recent years is bound to raise legitimate questions in people's minds about what's going on. And I think people are right to point out that if Christian organisations run on public money, they have a right to expect to have to live by the rules of the public purse. But I think it's wrong to insist that Christians must change their beliefs about sexual behaviour or be considered to be homophobic. Essentially, what has happened this week is that very publicly two worldviews have collided. And I think the significant thing this week is that it is very clear that the secular worldview has won. We are living in a new era. Society, certainly its lawmakers, have become cynical of religion and of Christianity. And as a consequence, things have changed. And I think it's time for Christian churches to wake up and smell the coffee, as we put it sometimes. This is the way life is. It's the way it has been for quite some time in this country. And there will be more changes ahead. Well, you'll know whether I'm a false prophet or not if they don't come true. But the bishops will lose their seats in a reformed house of lords, and as a Baptist, I don't have a lot of complaints about that. Churches will lose their charitable status, and ultimately their tax benefits. That seems to be inevitable in the years ahead. Equality legislation may be used against churches for refusing the use of facilities to groups with whom they disagree. Somebody's going to test it out, somewhere along the line. You don't have laws that are never tested. Christians, I think, will find in some sectors of public service that existing exemptions on conscience grounds will be challenged or will be removed. Society has changed. We're just living with the knock-on effects of it. As a Baptist who believes strongly in the separation of church and state, I have to say I'm not actually particularly troubled by all this. I'm saddened by it. I'm saddened by the shifts that we see happening in public morality. I don't believe it's good for society, but it shouldn't actually be surprising. In truth, it's normal for most of our brothers and sisters around the world. Maybe it should be seen by us as the just reward for only ever being concerned about moral issues that affect us as churches, and not being in the forefront about moral issues that affect other people's well-being. We don't tend to find Christian organizations challenging the government and court on behalf of others who suffer injustice. We are, and I think, have been, more concerned about our own freedoms than those of others. And therefore, to some degree, I think we had this coming. It certainly doesn't spell the end of the church in these islands. In my opinion, it may well in years to come, mark the revival of the church when it is stripped of its privilege and comfort within society. Anyway, that's my rant over. Everybody else got the rant this week. The basic line is this. We find ourselves living in a society that is increasingly cynical of Christianity. It's not unlike the first century, and it's going to become increasingly more like it. So what kind of people ought we to be in that context? And the answer is there for us in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11. And the two things that I want to highlight about that this morning are that we should be living holy, godly lives and we should be looking forward to the home of righteousness. What does Peter mean by using the phrase living holy and godly lives? Apparently, a literal translation of that phrase would be living in holy forms of behaviour and godly acts. The emphasis is on doing, not just thinking. It's not just about what you are in your head, it's about how you actually choose to live. Now these are themes that are well established. In First Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, as well as in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, these themes of holiness and godliness. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 15 to 16, the context is that Christians have to prepare their minds for action. They have to be self-controlled and abandon the evil desires they had when they lived in ignorance. The lifestyle and attitude of the Christian is to mirror that of God and his activity. For it is written, says Peter in scripture, be holy because I am holy. So the thrust of Peter's first letter and the developments of its theme about holiness is about practical good Christian living, being good, doing good, whatever the cost, and whatever people think, or however they respond, they are the principal practical features of 1 Peter. How are we to live in a society that is cynical about us and about our faith? In practical holiness, being good, and doing good. The temptation will be to retreat into our ghettos. The temptation will be to become bitter and cynical about what's happening in the world around us. We might end up happy to let the world go to hell on the basis that we believe, well, that's what it deserves anyway, given the way it operates. But a cynical society, Peter says, is to be met with good behaviour, good attitudes and good works. The loss and the relinquishment of power or influence is not an opportunity to retreat and feel sorry for ourselves. The loss or relinquishment of power or influence is a challenge to find new ways of doing good in the name of God. And if in years to come, youth services, adoption agencies, counselling services or other forms of useful social service become closed to churches because of the withdrawal of public funding or risk of litigation, then we simply find new ways to do good, new ways to live holy, godly lives. Living holy lives has this very positive side to it. Living a holy life is not merely a negative response to an immoral society. Holiness is not merely separation in saying, I have nothing to do with that. Godly lives, godly living, which Peter refers to here in 2 Peter 3, is generally understood to mean much the same thing as holy lives and holy living. A godly life is one that respects God's will, And the moral way of life which is inseparable from a proper religious attitude to God. Apparently the word godly was actually a very ordinary word in Peter's world. It was used by people to describe their ambition, what they hoped they would become as a result of their religious observance. It often spoke of decency, honesty, trust and integrity. You may remember the incident in Acts chapter 3 and verse 12. People thought that the miracle of the healing of a crippled man was a result of Peter's power or godliness. And Peter had to put them right. It was God's power in the name of Jesus that healed the man. But you get the sense of the expectation around him. People expected that godliness would result in powerful goodness. In a society and a context which becomes cynical of Christianity and has, unfortunately, plenty of evidence of the hypocrisy and failure on the part of Christians, our calling is to be good, and to do good, as a sign of practical holiness, and to be powerfully good as an expression of godliness. That's what Peter expected in the first century. That's what scripture expects of us in the 21st century. The other thing that Peter highlights in this passage is this looking forward to the home of righteousness because he sets all of this living in the context of hope. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. It's going to be a day of judgment, it's going to bring destruction, but in keeping with his promise we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. I don't think we can underestimate the significance of what Peter is saying here in this particular passage. I don't know whether you remember back to the series we did called Joined Up Christian Living. This is one of the passages that we used when we talked about what is the vision that sustains us. The vision that sustains us is that we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness, where righteousness is at home. I think there is, for us as Christians, in our day, as in the first century... The most tremendous temptation to live with our heads down. In fact, for some of us, it's maybe our default position. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just get tired out by the optimists. The people who are always out to change things. Cynicism, for me, sometimes is like a comfortable pair of slippers or an old jumper. You feel very secure and very comfortable and safe when you're wearing them. It's a kind of protection mechanism. Reaffirming to ourselves that everything's going to the dogs feels strangely safe and comforting. Well, Peter believed everything was going to burn, which is very dramatic, but only so that something more wonderful would be established. We're often with him up to the burn stage, but slow to see the glory ahead. Peter understood the need for vision in the first century church vision enables you to live holy, godly lives in the face of cynicism even your own cynicism vision of a world in which righteousness is at home gives us an indication of what we should be modelling in a world where righteousness is being turned on its head you cannot on the basis of scripture take the view that says it's all going to hell so it doesn't matter You have to take the view that much is going to hell and we have a responsibility to show a new heaven and a new earth and what it might look like as we share the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ. That's serious hard work. There may be real pain. And if all you feel like doing is having a good grumble, it might be quite difficult. I'm partial to a good grumble. Dorothy says I should establish a new organisation called The Gobs. Grumpy old Baptists. But truthfully, it's not really an option. Because my calling is to mirror the goodness of God, his grace and his mercy in the incarnation and the atoning death of Christ, in holiness and godliness, in the midst of the mess, whether it's the mess of our society or some other society. However cynical society may become about Christianity, However, much the status of Christians and churches may change in years to come, whether we lose charitable status and loads of tax returns as a consequence, whether we're refused a role in social service provision, whether we're banned from university campuses, whether we're branded as backward bigots, we meet the cynicism in the 21st century as our brothers and sisters did in the first century with practical holiness and powerful goodness called godliness and with a strong vision of what can be and what will be in the home of righteousness i believe as christians we can make a difference in our society it won't be through the courts it will only only be through holiness and godliness inspired by the vision of a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will be at home. I'd like us to take a moment just to be quiet together. You may not agree with everything I've said this morning. As I say regularly, feel free to say so. Feel free to put me right if you think I'm wrong in some points. But let's just reflect on this call. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. What is it you look forward to? A new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness. So if any aspect of living in this world is getting you down, and you're thinking it's all a bit of a waste of time, be encouraged. Father, thank you for the model that is here for us in Scripture, where people lived courageously, good lives, in very difficult circumstances. Thank you that scripture gives us a very clear command and a very clear, clear call as to how we ought to live and order our lives in our society. We pray for grace to do so. And we pray for wisdom that in a changing society we might know how to live well. How to discharge our duties and responsibilities well. How to stand up for the things that we believe are right and do so graciously but firmly. How to live with people who disagree with us. Who maybe even find our views not just disagreeable but hurtful. Help us to do these things seeking the mind of Christ. Help us not to be afraid but to be courageous. Help us not to be selfish but self-giving. Help us not to be frightened but confident of your goodness and your glory which will be seen and manifest in the home of righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.